1: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on US. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active mint customers by 53124. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus Registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast.
0: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, episode 108, Europe Under the Eagle. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by thanking our Patreon supporters. Without your help, none of this would be possible. In our most recent bonus episode, I finally delved into the discourse around Ridley Scott's Napoleon film and the nature of historical adaptation. So, if you've been thinking about this movie, you might want to check it out. Anyway, we left off last time with a discussion of the Napoleonic government and the Emperor's working habits. Combined with our recent episode on the art of the Napoleonic era, hopefully you now have a better sense of the Emperor's somewhat contradictory public image. On one hand, a glorified monarch chosen by destiny to take up the mantle of the old kings of France, and the successor to Caesar, Alexander, and Charlemagne. And, on the other hand, the hard-working public servant, the bureaucrat-in-chief, toiling away in his office with bleary eyes, in wrinkled clothes, ever vigilant for the national interest. These two images might seem incongruous, but both were rooted in Bonaparte's character. We talked at length in episode 105 about what Napoleonic rule meant for the people of Paris. Obviously, the capital was the imperial government's top priority, but the first empire had a profound impact on the entire country, and indeed, the entire continent. In this episode, I'd like to take a little time to explore Napoleon's empire, how it functioned, how it shaped the places it ruled, and what it was like for those living under the eagle. No two places had the exact same experience of Napoleonic rule. One European who lived through this period might have told you that the empire only brought deprivation, oppression, and death, and another might tell you it was a time of liberation and progress. Depending on where they came from, both might have been telling the truth. Before we dive all the way in, it's important to define our terms. We often talk about the empire— but that is actually a somewhat vague term, encompassing territories with a whole spectrum of different relationships to Napoleon and his administration in Paris. In the core areas of the empire, Napoleon had direct control over the administration, but that was just one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, there were areas where France only ever had indirect control, where they had some influence over the administration, but mostly ruled through the pre-existing power structure. And of course, the empire lasted different lengths of time in different parts of Europe. France itself was under Napoleonic rule for a decade and a half. But there were places on the fringe of the empire that only came under French control for a few weeks. When Napoleon came to power, France's borders were a bit bigger than they are today. Years of successful conquests during the revolution could be traced on the map. The former Austrian Netherlands, modern-day Belgium, had been annexed into the Republic, as had part of western Switzerland. The revolutionaries had also taken land in Germany. You might remember the idea of France's natural borders from past episodes. Well, that old ambition had been realized. All German territory west of the Rhine had been annexed. The Napoleonic administration did not pay equal attention to every area under its rule. As we've discussed in past episodes, like all governments, the Napoleonic regime tended to focus on the most important and economically dynamic parts of the country. These areas were the ones that got the full experience of imperial rule, 15 years under the direct, constant attention of the Napoleonic government in Paris essentially modern France, but with significant additional territory along its western and especially northwestern border. Moving down that spectrum of authority, on the next tier, you have places that were annexed into France after Napoleon came to power. As we'll see in future episodes, the official borders of France grew quite a bit under the empire, even though not every area that came under French influence was actually annexed into the country. At its height, Napoleonic France also included much of northern and central Italy, the Netherlands, practically all of northwestern Germany, Catalonia, even parts of faraway Croatia, and the Greek island of Corfu. I would also place the Kingdom of Italy in this category. The Kingdom of Italy ruled over most of the parts of northern and central Italy that were not annexed into France. They never came under the direct rule of Paris, But Napoleon himself was the king of this kingdom, and it was a very important part of the empire, so it got a lot of resources and attention, despite never formally becoming part of France. On the next tier down, there are countries that were never directly ruled from Paris or by Napoleon, but were effectively French puppet states, or organized and sponsored by France, if you want to put it a little more kindly. These countries had their own independent political leaders, national institutions, and administrations. In every legal sense, they were independent sovereign governments, but in practical terms, they had very little meaningful autonomy. These states were organized along French lines, and dependent on French support. You could often find Frenchmen working in their administrations, either officially as state employees or unofficially as advisors. Some of these countries even had members of Napoleon's family as their monarchs. Examples from this tier would include the Kingdom of Naples, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, and the Kingdom of Westphalia. Few of these places got the full experience of 15 years of Napoleonic rule. For instance, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw was an incredibly important period in Polish history, but there were only a little over five years between the foundation of the state after the Treaty of Tilsit and its occupation by the Russians. Finally, all the way at the end of the spectrum, there were countries still ruled by pre-revolutionary old regime governments that were allied to Napoleon. At least on paper, these were not ideological fellow travelers of the new Napoleonic state. Their governments more closely resembled those of France's enemies. Traditional states, with a mix of old feudal institutions and 18th century absolutism. They were allied to France for geopolitical reasons, not because of some shared philosophy. In some of these places, collaboration with Napoleon was not totally voluntary. They allied with the French because they lacked the means to oppose them. As they say, if you can't beat them, join them. That said, these places were not immune from French political influence. Alliances with Napoleon were rarely equal partnerships. When these leaders opened the door to diplomatic and military collaboration with the empire, they were also opening the door to new ideas and new forms of administration. In some cases, Napoleonic France used its influence to strong-arm its allies into accepting political or social reform. In other cases, Napoleon's allies were eager to adopt more efficient modern systems and took advantage of French help to make it happen. Many of the states in this tier were in Germany, Bavaria, Württemberg, Baden, and many of the smaller countries within the Confederation of the Rhine, the new Napoleonic replacement for the Holy Roman Empire. It's important to keep these differences in mind when we try to generalize about Napoleon's empire. In some places, French rule brought profound social, political, and economic change. People found themselves in entirely new states, administered by entirely new institutions, that sought to transform the social order. In other places, average people barely noticed the change. Association with France almost always meant some degree of change and reform, but the same people were still in charge, and the fundamental nature of the social and political system remained the same. Still other places found themselves in between these two extremes. We can't generalize too much. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, there were countless different experiences of the Napoleonic Empire, and they were often wildly different. Still, with that caveat, we can talk in general terms about the type of system the French were trying to build in the lands they ruled. On the most basic level, many of these places had no real experience of central government. Old regime states were often little more than federations of autonomous or semi autonomous territories. On most matters, rulers could only exercise their will indirectly, often through old feudal institutions. The French believed that their system, in which the country was ruled directly from Paris through the hierarchy of a professional bureaucracy, was far superior. Napoleon would impose this system where he could, and encourage his allies to emulate it as closely as possible. The French style of administration didn't only represent new structures, but a new outlook on governance, and new people doing the governing. Napoleon and his regime were strong believers in what we today would call activist government. They saw it as their duty to use their power to shape society in the common interest. Old regime government was typically much more restrained by law and tradition, and the men who set its policies typically had more of a hands-off philosophy towards the societies they ruled. In old regime administrations, nobles and clergymen typically took the lead. Professional clerks or bureaucrats were usually relegated to a supporting role. As we discussed last episode, Napoleon had a very different view. He preferred a government run by what we would call white-collar professionals, educated people promoted on merit. This usually required an expansion of public education. If you're going to staff your government with well-educated commoners, you need institutions where commoners can get educated. So there would be new systems of government, new people staffing them, and a general new philosophy around the role of the state and society. French rule also typically came with concrete policy changes. As we discussed in past episodes, Napoleon was a big believer in his new code of civil law, which he saw, not incorrectly, as part of the bedrock of a modern society, and there would be tremendous benefits to the standardization of law codes across the continent. And so, wherever the French had influence, they worked to bring local legal systems in line with those in France. French rule also typically brought a whole slate of new social policies, the abolition of serfdom and noble privilege, equality under the law, the legalization of divorce, full religious freedom, the emancipation of the Jews, and the subordination of religious institutions to the state. In short, the French wanted to spread all the changes ushered in by the revolution to the rest of the empire. The way they saw it, France had learned what worked and what didn't from painful trial and error during the 1790s. Now they had a winning system, and with the whole continent at war, they needed to make sure everyone fighting on the French side had the benefits of this new system, so they could contribute to the war effort. As I mentioned earlier, no two places had the same experience of French rule. There was no single template that was applied to all the non-French territories of the empire. Some places never got this full program. Some places only got part of it. In some areas, it was more or less rolled out all at once, while others got more gradual reform. But in general, wherever it had influence, the Napoleonic regime was working towards this ideal. There were occasional concessions to local conditions, but generally speaking, government officials, military officers, and Napoleon himself all believed the French way of doing things was more modern, more just, and above all, more efficient. We talked in our early episodes about the sense of evangelizing mission that developed in France during the darkest years of war and revolution. The revolutionaries told the people of France and their soldiers that the country was on a great crusade to bring the light of reason to a continent still mired in the darkness of feudalism and superstition. A lot had changed since that time. The country and its leaders had grown more cynical. That revolutionary fervor had been tempered by years of hard struggle and disappointment. But it had not totally vanished. While the most idealistic dreams of the revolutionary years had been dashed, Many of the less exciting innovations of the revolution had proved quite useful. The Napoleonic state was stronger, more dynamic, more effective, and more stable than the old regime. That was in large part due to the legal, administrative, and social reforms that had come out of the revolution. Napoleon and his regime did not think of themselves as ideological crusaders. However, they were strong believers in the French system not only for philosophical reasons, but because they thought it worked. Hadn't all the dazzling success of the preceding years proved that beyond any doubt? Napoleon believed what worked in France would work in Italy and Germany and the Netherlands and Switzerland and every other place in the empire. He knew French-style reform would breed resistance. He had seen, and in some cases had personally fought against, such resistance from the very beginning of his career. But he was confident that any opposition would be transitory. He believed, with time, French-style government, administration, and social reforms would prove their worth and become broadly popular. After all, who could possibly object to freedom and effective government? Hopefully by now, it's clear to you that Napoleon was a very savvy political operator. But as I said last episode, no one is right all the time and on this matter, Bonaparte was dead wrong. By and large, the non-French parts of the empire never warmed to Napoleonic rule. The regime never set down firm roots outside France. Perhaps that would have changed with time if the empire had persisted, but we'll never know. Even in places that got the full experience of 15 years of Napoleonic governance, there was widespread suspicion and even hostility towards the imperial administration. Even in core parts of the empire, like northern Italy and the Netherlands, the French were never able to shed their image as foreign occupiers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In some places, these attitudes had formed long before Napoleon took power. In fact, in many areas along France's borders, the country had a reputation for conquest and oppression long before the Revolution. Napoleon was not the first powerful, centralizing French monarch to expand his domains through conquest. The wars of the Sun King, Louis XIV, were still remembered with bitterness in many of the areas his armies had ravaged. Many people who lived along France's borders had been raised on stories of cruel French soldiers committing atrocities, and could only ever think of Napoleon as one more in a long line of tyrannical French conquerors. All over the continent, there was also a lot of lingering bad feeling about the more recent past. Throughout the 1790s, Europeans had been inundated with counter-revolutionary propaganda. By our standards, this propaganda was pretty crude, and its reach was very limited by the lack of any mass media. That said, it had an impact on public perceptions of France, even in remote parts of the continent, where people were not very plugged in to the wider world. In 1798, shortly before Napoleon's seizure of power, a traveler visited the secluded Eiffel Mountains of northwestern Germany and described how the locals viewed their occupiers. The population of this desolate corner, hidden away behind barren rocks, has hardly ever seen French soldiers during the course of the war but they have been depicted as bandits and atheists who plunder churches and drag pictures of Christ on the cross through the mud, tied to their horses' tails. Quote. As that quotation suggests, many who disapproved of the French were motivated by religion. This was the age of the Enlightenment. Some intellectuals and members of the bourgeoisie had moved away from the traditional religious worldview but this was a small and isolated trend. For the vast majority of Europeans, religion played a huge role in daily life and in their personal beliefs. In fact, this era also saw movements to popularize religion. Some places were more on fire with the faith than at any point in living memory. Bonaparte and his government saw their own religious policies as well-considered and moderate. From their perspective, under the old regime, the Church had become far too powerful, and had become a malign influence on society. Then, the revolutionaries had swung the pendulum too far the other direction, creating civil discord with their ill-conceived attacks on the very idea of religion. Napoleon and his allies believed the compromise that had emerged between these two extremes after the Concordat with the Vatican was the perfect median preventing the church from interfering in politics or encroaching on people's freedoms, while also providing it with enough autonomy to allow religion to flourish and provide benefits to the social order. As we discussed in our episodes on the Concordat, the reality is somewhat more complicated than that rosy view, but that's how Napoleon and his supporters saw things. The people of France may have had their objections to the Concordat, whether from the right or the left, but it was generally popular. Compared to the way previous revolutionary governments had treated the church, the new status quo did seem like a reasonable, moderate compromise. And, more importantly, it had brought an end to bitter civil conflict. And so, within France, the Concordat was seen as one of Napoleon's greatest political victories. And so, naturally, as the empire expanded, the regime sought to implement French-style religious policy on its new territories. Unfortunately for the empire, these policies were perceived very differently abroad. Most people outside France had not experienced the religious conflicts of the 1790s. The new policies established under the Concordat seemed very moderate and pragmatic compared to, for example, Jacobin religious policies. In France, the Concordat had been a step back from the really radical anti-clericism of the 1790s, but in places that had not experienced that radical period, Napoleon's religious policies seemed like a step towards radicalism. As the French armies advanced across Europe, many people of faith worried they would work to undermine or even destroy religion, just as all that anti-revolutionary propaganda had primed them to think. And, in the eyes of many, the imposition of French-style religious policy was a confirmation of all those fears. Napoleon touted himself as the restorer of French Catholicism, the man who had finally ended the ruinous schism between church and state. Maybe there was some truth to that in the French context, but to many of his non-French subjects, he was still the Jacobin General Bonaparte, an enemy of God. Napoleon's opponents took full advantage of this perception. All over Europe, conservative religious leaders painted the war against France as a crusade. True Christianity versus a horde of hateful atheists, bent on the destruction of all religion. Within the empire, this message resonated the most in rural, remote areas. For many of the poorest peasants of the empire... Religion was just the first of many complaints about the imperial government. Before the arrival of the French, many of these remote places had little contact with the state. They kept to themselves, settled their own problems their way, and that was how they liked it. The arrival of active, energetic government was often not welcomed. French-style administration brought with it French-style taxes and French-style conscription. Of course, it also brought benefits, but rural areas were often low on the list of priorities, and those benefits were often not easy to understand from the perspective of a poor, isolated peasant community. You might think these people would have been grateful for the abolition of serfdom and feudal dues, but this process was not always handled well, and the people it was designed to help sometimes felt it was not worth all the trouble it caused. And so, in some places, the local peasants took up their priests' call for a crusade and rose in rebellion against Napoleon. We've seen this kind of conservative rural resistance before, in the war in the Vendée during the Revolution, the Catholic revolts in northern Italy during the First Italian Campaign, and in the violent insurgency in southern Italy. I think you could also draw parallels to the Muslim resistance to the French occupation of Egypt. Unfortunately for the rebels, the French army had seen this kind of thing before, too. French officers and civilian officials had extensive counterinsurgency experience. By this point in our story, there was a well-known playbook for dealing with these kind of religious peasant uprisings. Still, throughout Napoleon's empire, there were always regions where the population was restive, and sometimes there were even pockets of active guerrilla warfare. The French referred to these as Little Vendées. These rural rebel movements often blurred the line between banditry and partisan warfare. How do you tell the difference between a partisan, who sometimes steals to feed himself and his comrades, and a bandit, who also happens to hate the government for its religious policies? Practically speaking, how much of a difference is there? We've talked a bit about banditry in past episodes. In this period, it was absolutely endemic, not only in Napoleon's empire, but all over Europe, and in fact, over most of the world. The Napoleonic government addressed the problem with its usual energy and forcefulness, recruiting tens of thousands of men into the imperial gendarmes, an organization of militarized mounted police who patrolled the rural parts of the empire. Not only did the gendarmes fight bandits and partisans, They also enforced tax collection and conscription, and put down rebellions, and generally acted as the muscle of the French administration outside the cities. Needless to say, this did not make them popular, particularly in the more restive parts of the empire. And for their part, the gendarmes sometimes despised the people they policed, viewing them as violent, lazy, and backwards. In some ways, they appear almost more like a 19th century colonial police force. And that's no accident. The European colonial powers of the 19th century modeled their colonial police forces on the French gendarmerie. Looking at the type of men who were drawn to the gendarmes, they do strike me as the type of people who would have gone to the colonies if they had been born a generation or two later. Braggarts and rogues, men who were addicted to action and danger and loved to fight and men who were convinced of their own country's superiority. One gendarme leader described a campaign against bandits in southern Italy. Quote, Swiftly and with a clear eye, I decided to go straight to the areas infested by these numerous bands of assassins. Thanks to my natural verve, to my youthful vigor, to a certain ability to win over the locals, and being somewhat familiar with the language, I undertook a mission that would have discouraged the most hardened politician, And paralyzed a soldier's courage. I used my natural ability, and heaven gave me so much success that peace and order were soon restored. Obviously, this particular officer was a bit of an egomaniac, but bluster aside, the gendarmes actually were generally pretty effective at keeping a lid on these rural problems. There would be no major peasant rebellions within the empire during Napoleon's rule. Still, as our story continues, the French gendarmes will be fighting against a rising tide. As taxes and conscription quotas rose, more and more people dropped out of society and took to the hills or forests, rather than paying their taxes or reporting for duty. In remote parts of the countryside, you could also find bands of deserters from the Grande Armée. Some of these people were just living off the grid, as we would say today. Others took part in banditry or joined up with the rebels. These remote, rural parts of the empire could be wild, dangerous places. I've seen them compared to the Wild West, roving bands of outlaws and renegades, far from any civilization, with the heavy hand of the gendarmes as the only justice, if you can call that justice.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Violent resistance was the strongest at the margins of society. The typical anti-French rebel was a poor peasant from a remote area, sometimes led by a reactionary clergyman or a poor local noble. This was not Napoleon's natural constituency, to put it mildly. As we've discussed in past episodes, Bonaparte gravitated towards educated people, businessmen, white-collar professionals, and liberal nobles. This was the segment of society he himself came from. These were the types of people who were most likely to support his regime, and his government tended to favor their interests. Bonaparte believed these types of people were building the world of the future, and the subsequent history of the 19th and 20th centuries would more or less vindicate that point of view. As new territories were added to the empire, these were the types of people Napoleon hoped to win over to his new order. These strata of society were not as hostile to the imperial regime as the peasantry, but generally speaking, the nobility and the bourgeoisie did not support the empire either. Elite resistance was generally nonviolent. Nobles and men of affairs felt they had better things to do than hang out in a remote forest or highland with only a rusted pike for a bedfellow. They tended towards much more tame forms of resistance often intellectual projects like books or pamphlets. In episode 90, we talked about one of these men, the German printer and bookseller Johann Philipp Palm, who paid the ultimate price for printing and distributing a pamphlet that called for violent resistance to the French. In Italy, these types of middle-class dissidents tended to form secret societies, some of which had exotic names, like the Black League and the Society of the Rays of Light, but they were not very influential. Others found less direct and safer ways to criticize the French, writing books about their local history and politics that emphasized their independence and distinctness from France or forming societies to promote the local language and culture as a form of passive resistance to the encroachment of the French language and French customs. Some of this scholarly resistance dovetailed with a nascent intellectual trend that was beginning to appear in the more literate corners of the continent. We've talked about this in past episodes, so I won't go into too much detail here, but by this point in our story, the Enlightenment was on its last legs. People still read the great Enlightenment thinkers, just as they do today. But the movement no longer had the same energy and dynamism that it did in the mid-18th century. Napoleon's generation would be the last to know the Enlightenment as a vital, iconoclastic, dissident force that challenged the status quo. The rising younger generation, who were entering adulthood at roughly this point in the story, had only ever known a world in which the official state ideology of the most powerful country in Europe was largely inspired by Enlightenment ideas. The leading lights of the movement had all been dead for decades. The Enlightenment no longer had the same attraction to mentally restless, idealistic young intellectuals. They were increasingly drawn to new movements that were just beginning to form, that would come into their own in the decades after Napoleon's fall, what we would label Romanticism and Nationalism. These forces will become more important as our story continues, and we will talk more about them in the future, but it's important to keep in mind that the people involved in these nascent intellectual trends were only a tiny minority of the middle and upper classes, who themselves were only a tiny minority within the wider society. Many from the privileged classes didn't bother with any kind of formal resistance, but simply refused to participate in the new system. Across the empire, there were shortages of bureaucrats, teachers, professors, military officers, and other jobs that were typically filled by educated people, because so many aristocrats and members of the bourgeoisie were not interested in serving Napoleon. Some aristocrats dropped out of society entirely, settling their affairs in the local capital, pulling up stakes, and retreating to their country estates to wait out all this foolishness. So why were so many educated upper and middle class people so dissatisfied with the imperial regime? As we discussed, these were Napoleon's people, his natural constituency. What went wrong? Once again, I think it's important to keep in mind how different Napoleon and his government looked outside the very specific context of French politics. Bonaparte had sold himself and his regime to the people of France as a pragmatic, moderate alternative to the extremes of both left and right. He promised the preservation of the positive developments of the revolution, along with the stability and sense of normality that people associated with the old regime. That was a very good pitch to people who had lived through the collapse of the monarchy and all the hope and disappointment of the revolution. But the rest of Europe had not experienced that history. They hadn't watched their old regimes falter and fall apart, as the French had. Most had not been through any significant period of radical rule, as the French had. And so, to many outside France, Napoleon did not appear as a figure of pragmatic moderation but as just another Jacobin general with a radical agenda. Many in the aristocracy still had a sense of loyalty to their old former monarchs. Even in badly governed parts of Europe, kings and queens and dukes and duchesses had spent generations working hard to build and maintain relationships with their aristocracies. Those ties didn't vanish overnight as soon as the French marched in. Furthermore, I think Napoleon and his regime were somewhat naive in their assumption that efficient, effective government is inherently popular. In every society, there are people whose personal interests conflict with the common interest. The public's loss is often some private individual's gain. The old regime status quo's tended to work pretty well for the people at the top of the hierarchy. No surprise, they often didn't appreciate it when a group of outsiders came in and started meddling with the way things were done. You might say these recalcitrant elites were being selfish, putting their own interests ahead of the good of their societies. Perhaps that's true, the French certainly thought so. But in any country, in any era, it's quite rare to see people voluntarily giving up their privileges. The new territories of Napoleon's empire were no exception. And the elite had more than purely selfish complaints about Napoleonic rule. They, too, were hit by high taxes, although they were at least usually able to avoid conscription. There was also the economy. Napoleon's blockade on all British commerce, the so-called continental system, had proved hugely destructive. Bonaparte had foreseen this. He admitted as much in his private correspondence. However, the hope had been that after a few years, French industry would grow and fill the void, fueled by the profits from a large captive market that now included almost the entire continent. Those of you who have studied business or economics know that massively scaling up an enterprise in a short time is a lot trickier than it might sound, even with favorable market conditions. Generally speaking, French industry was not up to the task. Several years into the blockade, many goods that had formerly been imported from Britain remained scarce and expensive. Luxury goods from the colonies were particularly hard-hit. Coffee, tea, sugar, rum, and tobacco had all become much more expensive, and in some places could even be impossible to find without some kind of black market connection. Obviously, no one likes having to pay more for their purchases. But for the people in the business of trading and selling these products, the continental system was a serious threat to their livelihoods. It wasn't too hard for people to figure out who to blame for all the problems caused by the blockade. This was Napoleon's policy in service of Napoleon's war. Given that context, you will probably not be surprised to hear that a massive smuggling trade had developed between Britain and the continent. Any product that was hard to find illegally could be procured relatively easily through the black market. The Napoleonic government worked hard to crack down on smuggling. In fact, this was a big reason so many areas along the North Sea had been annexed into the empire. Bonaparte didn't trust his puppet governments to go after the smugglers with the proper enthusiasm. Obviously, this problem needed to be stamped out if the continental system was going to work, But every crackdown on smuggling made enemies among those who made their living in the business, and those who participated in the black market, which was practically everyone. All of this paints a pretty bleak picture. I don't want to give you the impression that all the non-French subjects of the empire hated Napoleon, or were opposed to his new order. For starters, as I've mentioned in many past episodes, it's always important to keep in mind that the vast majority of people in this era were apolitical, and there were people all over Europe who supported Napoleon, some begrudgingly, some with ambivalent feelings, and some with great enthusiasm. Tens of thousands of non-French people fought on the French side during these wars. Thousands served as clerks, bureaucrats, or teachers in French or French-style administrations. And there were pockets of passive popular support as well. Just like with opponents of the regime, we can generalize a bit about what types of people tended to support Napoleon. At the end of the day, we're talking about the personal convictions of hundreds of thousands of individuals, but there are some discernible trends. There were people in the empire for whom the arrival of the French was a moment of liberation. Many of them saw Napoleon as a savior, and they repaid him with loyalty. We've discussed the example of Poland at length. For many Poles, the calculation was pretty simple. Whatever Napoleon's faults, his victory would assure Polish autonomy, and his defeat would almost certainly mean a return to life under the boot heel of a hostile foreign power. The Russians, Austrians, and Prussians had not been kind to Poland over the course of their occupations. Napoleon had always treated the Poles with respect. He even had a Polish mistress. No surprise, Napoleon will be popular among the Poles for the remainder of our story. Even in the darkest hour of the Empire, when Poland itself had been overrun by Russian forces, and Napoleon's defeat seemed assured, the Emperor's Polish troops remained loyal to the bitter end. It was a similar story for religious minorities. In most of pre-revolutionary Europe, anyone who was not a member of their country's official state church faced intense legal discrimination. In many cases, they were almost totally excluded from society. That changed under the empire. Napoleon was a sincere believer in freedom of conscience. He considered these types of exclusionary laws to be relics of the barbaric past. And not only that, he saw them as inefficient, a barrier to the harmonious, productive society he was trying to build. And so, within the empire, people who had once been legal outcasts suddenly found themselves free citizens, equal under the law. No surprise, hardly any of them wanted to go back. This group included Protestants who lived in majority Catholic areas and Catholics who lived in majority Protestant areas, as well as members of smaller religious communities who had managed to survive outside the mainstream. But most of all, it included the Jews of Europe. In many old-regime countries, Jewish people were not even legally considered subjects. Almost everywhere, they were subjected to legal and cultural discrimination. In some places, this was incredibly harsh every bit as oppressive as the Jim Crow South or apartheid South Africa. We'll talk more about the relationship between Napoleonic France and its Jewish subjects in a future episode, but suffice it to say, a great many European Jews felt a deep loyalty to the people who had dismantled the old discriminatory system, and they did not want to be forced back into their ghettos. Those old Enlightenment ideals about the universal brotherhood of all mankind and the destruction of all ancient irrational prejudices may have become stale in the eyes of rich intellectuals, but for the people who actually felt the sting of ethnic or religious bigotry, that promise of liberation meant a great deal. The empire paid a price for its religious tolerance. Just as there are today, there were some religious conservatives who did not feel they were truly living their faith unless they could oppress those who did not share their convictions. Some members of the right-wing religious resistance we discussed earlier in this episode were inspired by their desire to push those they saw as heathens and heretics back to the margins of society. The Napoleonic regime also got a great deal of support from a somewhat surprising quarter the left. Bonaparte had first risen to power during the coup of 18 Brumaire with a promise to crack down on the left. He had sold his regime to the people of France in part as a bulwark against radicalism. And this antagonism was not all one-sided. Many on the French left had vocally condemned the imperial regime for its retreat from revolutionary principles. And, as we discussed back in episode 57, radical French Republicans had actually tried to kill or kidnap Napoleon on several occasions. However, as we've discussed several times in this episode, the French political landscape was somewhat unique. Napoleon and his government were perceived very differently in places that had not gone through that period of revolutionary chaos in the 1790s. In non-French parts of the empire, the Napoleonic regime was, at least in some ways, quite a bit more progressive than what had come before. Whatever ideological objections these people might have had to Napoleon, his administration was in desperate need of educated, capable people, and it promoted based on merit. For many European radicals, this was the first chance they had ever had to actually participate in government. And with so few people both qualified and willing to work in the administration, a person with brains and energy could really make an impact. No surprise, many radicals took the opportunity, even if they didn't totally agree with the emperor's political outlook. The left also had a powerful negative incentive to work for a French victory, Throughout the period of the revolution, all over Europe, wherever reactionary forces had been able to reassert control over areas that had been under revolutionary governments, there were almost always violent, indiscriminate purges of anyone even remotely associated with the left. We've talked about this phenomenon in several past episodes, the so-called white terror. By this point in our story, No European involved with radical politics was under any illusions that purity of motive or even innocence would protect them from the fury of the reactionaries. The French army was the only bulwark against the violence of the old order, and so those on the left had little choice but to work for its success. When you look at Napoleon's empire up close, it seems like a ramshackle affair cobbled together haphazardly out of scraps of the Revolution, jumbled together with cast-off remnants of the Old Order. It wasn't very popular with its own subjects, and it probably would not have held together without force. Looking at its institutions and structures, and at the chaotic period of war and revolution in which it was born, it's a wonder anything worked at all. Because that's the really remarkable thing about this story for all the deep, seemingly intractable problems faced by the empire, for all its faults and failings, it was probably the most effective state in the world. In fact, the empire could point to some real successes. New public works projects built, new institutions founded. In particular, public health and education made massive strides under Napoleonic rule. To take one example, as I discussed in a recent bonus episode, Napoleon was a great admirer of the British doctor Edward Jenner, who pioneered an effective inoculation against smallpox. Bonaparte threw the weight of his government behind an ambitious program of inoculation, even introducing fines and other penalties for those who refused to participate. Smallpox was one of the greatest killers of the age. It's impossible to calculate how many tens of thousands were saved from death or disfigurement by these programs. Of course, to opponents of the regime, this was just one more example of French tyranny, another dangerous and eccentric idea foisted on Europe by the Corsican upstart. Some of Napoleon's more reactionary enemies even went so far as to claim that inoculation was the mark of the beast foretold in the Book of Revelation and thus, proof that Bonaparte was in league with Satan. Napoleon was wrong in his belief that Europeans would eventually come around to supporting his regime. However, he was more or less right in his belief that, through their experiences of the revolution, the French had developed a superior system of administration. This ramshackle empire, built through improvisation in a time of horrible national crisis, would, against all odds, prove to be the model for the state of the future. Even Napoleon's most zealous enemies would soon find themselves copying his methods. After his final defeat, the victorious coalition found themselves unable to part with much of the system Napoleon had built. Once again, I'm reminded of that line from Hegel, history on horseback. Napoleon's empire represented the future, for better and for worse. This sudden arrival of the future carried on the bayonets of the Grande Armée was an incredibly disruptive event. Most people did not enjoy watching their societies abruptly and radically transformed by what they perceived as a hostile outside force but even Bonaparte's most irreconcilable enemies would be forced to admit there was a method to all this madness. Unpopular and understaffed as it was, there was tremendous strength within the Napoleonic state. The coming years would test that strength in ways no one could imagine, and the whole world would be shocked by its resilience. That's all for now. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to a book that was a huge help in writing this episode, Europe Under Napoleon, by Michael Brewers. In fact, I would recommend anything by Michael Brewers, but if the topics we touched on in this episode are of a particular interest to you, Europe Under Napoleon is the place to start. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening.